This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We have the Ontario uh, election pretty much in full swing now that uh, the PCs have chosen a leader with Doug Ford. Uh, Patrick Brown not be allowed to run for the upcoming election. That's what the PC party has said. Let's bring in Alex Pearson, host of On Point with Alex Pearson, Global News Radio. You hear her too on, uh, as well on CHML. Alex, how are you? Oh, so glad it's Friday. So, so glad uh, it's Friday because you know what? This election's already killing you. We haven't started. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank goodness it's so short. Oh, yeah, right. You know, I mean... The longest three months of our lives. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, at least... That's what I see headlines out of the spec saying, how do we cover an angry Ford? It's like, really? Yeah, well... Once you get to know him, maybe you'll actually find he's actually quite reasonable. You know what? Um, Yeah. I must say, uh, uh, when I met him, I didn't... didn't, uh, uh, My opinion changed. We'll leave it at that. When I met him and he came in and he did the show... Uh, my opinion changed of him, and uh, I crazy? think I think there is a lot of bluster out there about what's going on and, and past baggage <laughs> yeah. and stuff. And but you know that that's all the other side has. And and yeah. the funny thing that you know the the more they complain about it, I think that just stokes the fire even more. But enough yeah. of that. Uh, let's talk about Patrick Brown. Did he get fired or did he step down? What's the story here? Uh, and we should also preface this by yeah. we should also preface this by saying at one time you used to work for Patrick Brown. I did. Well, I worked for the campaign yeah. on the campaign side of things, so I got to know the team pretty well. And I mean, I've known Patrick Brown for a long time because, uh, in in news times, uh, covering him for for federal politics, and when I lived in Barrie, you know, and covered him. I mean, I met him 25 years ago when he was just, you know, the city councilor. So hmm. he is a lifelong politician. This is in his blood. It's all he knows. Um, so there's no question he wanted to run. There's no question this will be devastating to him personally. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't, and and that is because uh, there's just too much baggage. And the last thing that the PC party would have wanted that Doug Ford could um, afford is to have negative headlines following them around. So what they've had to do is clean everything up, and that's what's happening behind the scenes right now at Queen's Park is there's a transition team that has moved in. They're going to be purging all the staffing or the weak spots that they see that could possibly come up during the election campaign. They'll be taking over and circling around Doug Ford and the leadership team to make sure that no uh, you know, landmines pop up. And those would be things like um, nominations that were in question in Ottawa. There's one in Hamilton that had been dogging them in Hamilton, Ancaster, uh, Dundas riding, and which, which is the candidate of Ben Levitt, who I really, really like, but I think he's had to be pushed aside for now while they look into that and a couple of other nominations uh, in the GTA. Those will all be opened, and if they have to put new candidates in or pick new candidates, they will, because they can't have any of these negative, you know, look what they've done. Doug Ford's keeping the same old Patrick Brown. Yeah. Um, that they don't want that dialogue. Well, it must be. Stuff. Well, looking at what la- it happened to the conservatives in the last couple of elections, they must be yeah. saying we cannot let anything shoot ourselves in the foot this time, right? Exactly what they're doing, and so they're going to clean up, clean house, get the narrative the way they want it, um, and keep it on all things pocketbook issues. So there's no question this poses a problem because Patrick Brown. Um, who I will also add was very gracious, not just when Doug Ford got his job, he sent out a tweet right away saying, I I unite and rally right behind my leader. But he sent out a a tweet last night when the news came out that he would not be running saying, you know what, 
I will not be running, and uh, thank you for everything, and I will be actively participating. So he, too, at least on the surface, is getting behind the party. I don't think this is the last time we've seen Patrick Brown. He's still pretty young. He's 39. And the thing is, Scott, he, he has a very, very, very loyal following. Yeah. This is a guy... Have you, t- have you talked to him since he announced all this? Uh, I didn't. I was going to reach out and just uh, say, hey, you know, you know, how you doing, yada, yada, because, uh, look, I'm not going to kick him when a guy's down. I don't yeah. believe in doing that. Um, I, eventually, he and I will talk, and I'll get an idea of what he's doing, but uh, last I knew, he has he was out of the country just taking some downtime, because while after he, he the leadership took him out, which was a very personal and very heavy hit, there's no question he was in a bubble, and I think those around him were pushing him, keep going, keep going, keep going, you can fight. And, you know, when you're in that kind of situation and yeah. you're in kind of like an S storm, as we would call it, mm-hmm. it's hard to get the proper perspective. So I think his immediate instinct was fight back, get back in the leadership. And the polling numbers suggested, Scott, that he could have won the leadership. But again, when you've got that much kind of mud um, and bad negative press loading up against you, there's just no way that he could have kept that narrative away. And it would have ended up uh, damaging the party. So he's stepping aside. He will get behind it. And it'll be interesting, I think, to see if his followers then either sit it out come election time or if they take his tone and say, "Okay, here we go. We are now forging ahead and we will put our support behind Doug Ford. Interestingly, the guy that is now stepping in for the nomination is Garfield Dunlop. How do I know Garfield Dunlop? Well, he was also part of Patrick Brown's inner circle. Uh, as an advisor, but he ran in that. He he served Barry for years. When I was a cub reporter, that's who I used to, to deal with, was Garfield Dunlop. So he's going for the nomination. Um, it would be great uh, to see if he could actually win that. And his daughter is also running for a riding. So that'll be hmm. the riding that Garfield used to be in, the direct riding that used to be in. So we've got this father-daughter uh, teaming up to take that territory to the north. Uh, and and both have name recognition. So there's an interesting fight going on, but there's no question they had clean house. Anything more on the CTB lawsuit? Well, look, if I were Patrick Brown, that is exactly where I'd be focusing my attention because, um, as some of you will remember, right after the initial report came out with allegations of sexual misconduct with these two women surfaced, um, those allegations started to fall apart, the story started to fall apart, and then um, Patrick... Uh, lawyers fired well, what, what, what changed was what changed was the age of the of the one person uh, below well, or that, above the age of consent. Change. Yeah, but that is were, a big change. Also, yeah, it's a big change, and there were also um, you know stories that uh, that CTV had not declared a conflict of interest, suggesting mm-hmm. that one of the people working on the story was also a friend with one of the uh, accusers. Yeah. Those are not small details. No, when you're doing an investigative hit that that you know is going to take out a. A, a political juggernaut. Not only do you have to be right twenty times plus, yeah. You, like there's just it's going to be interesting to see. Wrong. Yeah, it's going to be interesting yeah, to where that seat to go or where that goes. Yeah, I think he's got a strong case, but that's where I would be focusing my attention and just getting out of the limelight and kind of just recalibrating. But he will be active, no question, in the campaign, helping get getting out the vote. So, so is that is that what Patrick on. Brown's job is moving forward? Does he stay in the business and and work from the from behind the scenes, or does he get out of it and go do something else? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where else he would go. I mean, one thing he deserves credit for, and I think what he will um, uh, always kind of be remembered for, is really changing the face of the party. So when he took the PC party in the leadership 
two years ago, he took it from a membership of 12,000 to where it's at now, which some argue is anywhere between 140,000 to 200,000. But what he also did was take the party out of debt. They were $7 million in debt. He cleared away that debt. What he also, what he also did was pull it more towards the center and more towards a Bill Davis type of government and less of Mike Harris is, has Doug, is he, is it going in that direction or is it veering the other direction with Doug Ford? No, look, Doug Ford's no question taking the party back to being what it is, a conservative. And that that in itself, Scott, was a problem for, for um Patrick Brown is that So who do you think the who do you think's the who do you think would would uh, get the most votes? So Patrick Brown at the helm Doug or Ford. or Doug Ford at the, at the helm? Doug Ford because under under Patrick Brown, he was running essentially as a liberal and the base did not like that and a lot of people were going to sit out and not vote for that. They didn't like the carbon tax. They were like, "Why are we voting on these liberal policies?" Now that Doug Ford's in there, while some are kind of shocked about it, in the days that followed and now the narrative I'm starting to hear is, you know what, I'm actually kind of excited about this because he's going to run as a conservative, he's going to run on pocketbook issues, not these kind of um, issues of, 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 you know, the environment, that which, look, the, the, the carbon tax is what it is, it's a tax. I know people want to believe it's for something else. It's not. It's a tax that is used for government to just take more money out of your pocket. And so... That's what Doug Ford's going to bring the party to. He's not going to run some far-right, crazy neocon. He's not a neocon, by the way. He's a fiscal conservative. He's not even a social conservative. So he will run, I think, a blend of Patrick Brown policies in the People's Guarantee. I I know for a fact. Well, with him opening up the situation on pot, I mean, holy smokes, and wanting to privatize that or look into that as opposed to the LCBO model. I mean, that doesn't (laughs) hang, Hang on. Here we go. Uh, yeah, but but he also said, "Look, I'm going to do. I would do it slowly. He hasn't committed." Yeah, but it's not something you would hear. It's not some, something you no. would normally hear from a conservative. That's for sure. Well, no, 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 no. You're wrong. You wouldn't. You'd hear free that. enterprise. I know, but yeah, as far but as you wouldn't have heard it from Patrick Brown. Yeah, okay. He's terrified of Fair taking enough. on the unions. Yeah, but you would have had that for most conservatives to say, "No, we're a free market yeah, thinker." Free and enterprise. This is good for the people. Of I guess it was the pro- I guess it was the product that you know sort of clouded the free enterprise part of it. Well, no, I mean, the, the whole specific reason that Kathleen Wynne set up the pot uh, monopoly in the liquor store kind of model was to yeah. appease the unions, opsu. She wanted to keep them as a vote. Yeah. That is a very calculated move on her path. But the better thing for Ontarians would be to have a change, and that would be maybe a mix of private and government, because the bottom line is people in the province of Ontario are adults, and they should be given a choice of where they want to buy the product, have a choice of of price and all the rest of it. So competition's good. But, you know, so Doug Ford will not run as an afraid pretend conservative. I think that's a problem that would hmm. face Patrick Brown is like, who are you? Are you a liberal or are you a conservative? But um, you're, gen- gen- you're going to see this jockeying. But the thing about uh, Doug Ford that I think will be interesting is to see where he goes on issues of mental health spending. That was a $1.9 billion plank in the People's Guarantee. And he told me that he absolutely will keep that because of what happened to his brother, because of his brother's addiction issues. And this is where I think you're going to see a change in Doug Ford. He gets very kind of soft and emotional. He has a very kind of deep perspective um, that, frankly... This affects Scott every family yeah, in the yeah. province of Ontario, no, whether it's true. opiate addiction or yeah. mental health issues. Mm-hmm. He takes that very seriously. So I think you're going to see a mix of pocketbook issues of lower taxes, free enterprise, get rid of the carbon tax. But I also think you're going to see him own the issue of mental health spending 
an opiate uh, uh, addiction, um, you know, use, uh, fighting that because that's something that he can identify with. So how united is this party? Obviously, uh, a pretty wacky uh, uh, leadership convention. Uh, ha- has anybody heard from Christine Elliott? Wh- wh- how united is this party moving forward? Well, the fact that Lisa McLeod was out there at the St. Paddy's Day Parade with Doug Ford the very next morning shows that, um, and she was on Team Elliott right till the end. There's no question the party is now uniting behind Doug Ford. And while people may not realize it, leaderships are always extremely ugly. What makes this one different is that it's happening so close to an election and people are actually watching it. But any leadership campaign is usually 18 months out before an election so that people don't see the infighting and the mudslinging. This is unique, and it has a guy named Doug Ford in it, so it's going to get a lot more attention. But this happened. The party's now moving away from the things that you heard in the leadership campaign, which were issues of sex ed and all that stuff. Now they move into an election campaign mode, which is very, very different. They will build a platform, and that's what he will run on. And um, it'll be interesting to see what I think Andrea Horvath does, because she's been missing in action. Yeah, yeah, the point yeah, where I think she's in a witness protection program, and maybe it's that... <laughs> Story I saw I saw her on Long Street last weekend. She was there. Well, of course, that's an easy one. But where is she? Been? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. She had six weeks, Scott, to outflank Kathleen Wynne and take yeah. uh, attention away from the PCs and make it hers. And she's been missing. And she lost a huge opportunity to say, "Hey, here we are. Here's our alternative." Yeah, yeah. Well, the conservatives were stuck in a vacuum. That's certainly true. Hey, let me. What's on the big yeah. show tonight? Well, I'm going to talk about an issue that I think is extremely serious, and this is third-party involvement in a campaign. There's a group called Lead Now that's now doing an attack campaign against Deb Ford. They are, and I think people in Ontario should know who these organizations are because they take foreign spending and they go after um, causes that they hate. And in this case, they hate conservatives and they hate conservatives. But people should know in this province that when you hear the fear-mongering tactics, a lot of them come from the third-party outside forces that are fueled by outside money fighting Canadian interests. And um, it's pretty shocking because they have pretty close ties to the Liberal Party. So I'll go through that tonight. What about that Katy Perry story? You going to touch uh, that? Well, I Come on. Where's it gone? She jumped all over that guy with her yeah, big lips and... Her big lips that kissed Russell Brand, that goof she was married to, I know. Oh, I don't know. even go there. <laughs> so, 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 did did she assault him? Did she, uh, did she well, overstep? Can you imagine her? if it was a guy? That's my what point. If what if it was a guy and it was Robert? Girl yes. Like, could you imagine if it was someone like Gene Simmons saying, "Come here, little girl, I'll give you a kiss." <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be. Great. All right, now you're creeping me out. Oh, All right, make be. make sure you're listening to Alex Pearson tonight on the Global Radio Network. Uh, as always, Alex, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Hey, by the way, I'll also cover off Kathleen Wynne. Made a pretty interesting comment about white people voting, taking the vote. That That's also, I think, going to be a little bit of a controversy for her. Are you going to sleep between now and the next election? God, I hope so. Can you tell the bosses, like, we <laughs> need hot in her office? <laughs> All right, have a good one. Take care. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Uh, I see international relations. Boy, everybody seems to be angry at everybody. Uh, the UK and Russia, of course, um, the whole spy scenario and, and the poisoning of uh, the former uh, Russian spy and his, his daughter and, and so on and so forth. Everybody publicly condemning this. 
uh, including now uh, Donald Trump. Let's bring in Simon, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, it's a pleasure as always, Scott. So is it me, Simon, or was Donald Trump a little late to the table condemning Russia for this attack? Yeah, it, it certainly looks like it. Um, let's put it in context a little bit. You know, Germany, France, and the United Kingdom issued a joint statement condemning um, the Russian government, placing the blame for the uh, for the poisoning of Sergei Skripal on the backs of the Russian government. And to get a joint declaration from three governments on an issue like this, clearly singling out another government for behavior that they believe is way out of line, that, that's pretty damning. That's pretty severe. Um, that's a pretty severe rebuke, and it and it suggests that the you know the heads of government of these three countries are taking it quite seriously. For the president of the United States, and you know we got to remember the United States since 1945 is broadly considered to be you know the the, the country that guaranteed you know the security and the sovereignty of Western Europe that uh, you know faced down the USSR, uh, kept Germany in check, kept them from rearming. Ran NATO was really the, the but that's only if there that's only if there isn't a trade deal lying in limbo yep. though. So for him to be late to the party like this, it's certainly the optics aren't aren't good, and it suggests that you know relations between Europe and the United States, the United States as traditional allies, you know they may be as bad as some people fear. What does it say about the relationship between Russia and the United States? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer, as always. Um, let's face it. There well, are his well Trump's point, like when, after after we hear from uh, Theresa May and the stern things she had to say, uh, Trump basically casually says it looks like Russia was involved. I mean, compared to what the other country said, as you mentioned, the other leaders said, that's a pretty mild, uh, uh, you know, a pretty mild condemnation condemnation of of, of all this. Um, that being said, with the Mueller investigation now concentrating more on Trump's personal uh, financial situation and his personal business dealings as opposed to those related to the White House, again, what's the scenario? What does this do between the relationship between the White House and Russia and Trump and Putin? Yeah, Trump is still hemmed in at home on Russia. Even if the White House wants to have a better relationship with Russia, even if let's go down the, you know, accept the most elaborate theories about, you know, Russian uh, meddling in the last election, perhaps Donald Trump did accept Russian uh, help. Even if that were true, he still has to contend with Congress, which is a co-equal branch of government. He still has to contend with a civil service that is remarkably distrustful of Russia that sees it as an adversary. So the president can do things like drag his heels, um, be slow to put sanctions on Russians, for example. You'll recall last month, Rod Rosenstein, the assistant uh, attorney general, filed an indictment against 13 individuals in Russia for interference in the election. Finally, just yesterday, sanctions were leveled against those three. They can do that, but ultimately, you know, what Donald Trump, what the White House can do if they really do want to improve relations with Russia at a cost to, you know, the United States' relations with its allies, they can simply do nothing. And that, that arguably has been part of the playbook so far is that, you know, okay, condemn the Russian government, but do so in a very half-hearted manner. Don't uh, 
support calls for Article 4 consultations in the NATO treaty about, you know, it looks like a country's been attacked by an outsider. Let's consult. The United States, under President, President Trump's leadership, it's, it's been doing nothing rather than perhaps actively courting Russia. Well, when you see what's happening in the world, how long can you hold those positions? Uh, I mean, at what point does push come to shove here? Well, a big part of that will depend on how much um, the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives wants to uh, fight the president on this. You know, last summer we saw the uh, we saw the Senate um, author a really tough Russia sanctions bill, which they attached to some North Korea and Iran sanctions, and they essentially dared the president to you know veto it. And he didn't. the The bill passed. Now, the, the White House didn't do a great job of enforcing the provisions of the bill, making sure that these sanctions are put on Russia and whatnot. But the, the Senate has the ability to put political pressure on the, uh, on the president. The Senate has the, the, the right to uh, you know, approve of or disapprove of treaties that he tries to sign or enter the United States into. So part of it determines on whether or not you know, those other branches of the U.S. government are going to step up to take responsibility for, you know, the powers they've been given by the by American laws, by the American Constitution. I don't think we're there yet, but with midterms coming up in November, depending on how those pan out, you know, it's possible that you'll see a more assertive Congress willing to, you know, push back against the president on foreign policy. Uh, U.S. now accusing Russia of cyber attacks on the power grid, um, homeland security involved in all of this. Clearly, tensions are ramping up here. Uh, how, how long can Trump play both sides of the fence here? You know, and, that, and that's the question we're, we're all asking. What you're seeing in Europe now, for example, is for a few years, there was some skepticism that that Russian that this aggressive Russian foreign policy would keep up. You know, some years ago, the, the Brits were still skeptical, the Italians were skeptical. That skepticism has faded with time, and you're now seeing a much more unified Europe. They'll put pressure on the, the president. Um, this, like I said, Congress, you know, has started to, to stand up and, and uh, argue that the president needs to do more to protect uh, the U.S., particularly from malicious activity by the Russian government but it will it's all right now i think a function of time and a function of how much the the white house thinks it can ignore these issues if they're made election issues if the republicans lose badly in the, in the upcoming midterms that could change that calculus it could force the president to pay more attention to to this issue simply because domestic actors in the united states are demanding that they do so but uh, until then I think that the U.S. can resist taking any uh, any significant action. So obviously, uh, at this point, um, we are where we are. We will we will continue more of the same. Midterms are crucial, depending on which way America votes. What the second half of this term looks like? Yeah, I, I think that you know, to a large extent, it. I mean, let's face it: if Republicans not even lose the House of Representatives, because they probably won't lose the House, but if they lose a number of seats. You know, that's going to be considered to be, you know, a referendum on, on, on the president since since the president is a Republican. That'll give Republicans who are, you know, want to hang on to their seats, who have, you know, future political ambitions, you know, it'll give them an incentive to do that old classic trick of running against your own party, running against your own president, saying that, you know, 
I'm a Republican, but I think the president's wrong on this, 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 and this, and I'll use the powers that I have in my office to uh, try to correct his path. That could lead to a, you know, a much more tumultuous foreign policy in the, uh, the second half of um, his administration. Now, we have to remember that the U.S. is changing secretaries of state right now. Rex Tillerson, who was very skeptical of Russia, but a very steady hand, didn't want to do anything too, you know, too radical, yeah. don't act too quickly, think things through. He's being replaced by Mike Pompeo, who has a more of a, a gung-ho personality and is seen as far more, far more loyal to the president than Mr. Tillerson. Uh, we do have to wonder if Mike Pompeo doesn't bring the results that the president likes, if he can't uh, you know, craft a foreign policy that Americans love, you know, do we then see another secretary of state enter into office? And at that point, you've got a very unpredictable U.S. foreign policy, which will only raise anxieties in Europe. So here we are having these sensitive discussions in regard to, you know, whether it's it's domestic, whether it's things like the U.K. poisoning uh, and Russia's involvement and such. So these are the sort of discussions that are being had around the world. Everybody is waiting for the response for from the United States for the reasons you've mentioned earlier. And I don't want to get caught on on this topic, but. You know, all of a sudden Trudeau or sorry, um, uh, Trump is speaking in Missouri and starts saying and starts telling a story about him talking with Trudeau and 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 how he misled him, misled him and changed the facts around whether he knew what they were or not. And we all know, you know, where that's gone is a sort of a sidebar story. Mm -hmm. But considering what we're talking about here and then all of a sudden this is going on on the back burner or or, or a sidebar. How do world leaders interpret that? Because now it's a case of his truthfulness being questioned, and 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 he's and he's telling a joke. He's mocking it. Yeah, it it, it was the, the the timing of all this was you know really interesting since the Americans are increasingly eager to get a NAFTA some kind of settlement on NAFTA. You know they've resorted to these. Uh, threatened steel and aluminum tariffs that, of course, your listeners are familiar with. So suddenly for this to come out, when you've got all these other questions about American reliability, I mean, let's, let's consider... Especially when he starts using the term fake news all the time, Simon. Yeah, I mean, my precisely. goodness. I mean, is this not the pot calling the kettle black? I don't get it. Yeah, we all expect politicians to lie a little bit. That's, that's kind of accepted. And, and world leaders accept the fact that during negotiations, you don't always tell the whole truth. But rarely sure. do you get somebody bragging about lying. And what this does at this point, I mean, it does lead policy planners to kind of conclude that this White House, this U.S. government is not reliable. You still try to work with them. But they allow can. for it. They allow for this into the, into the formula, into the discussion. Precisely. You try to work with them when you can, but you don't rely on them following through. Their policy may change on a dime. You may not be getting the whole story. And you have to just kind of assume that this is not the, the U.S. of, you know, this is not Barack Obama's government or George W. Bush's government, where even if you disagree with them, you know generally they're going to follow through on a certain promise that they've made. You just you kind of assume that, you know, things could go badly. They may not live up to expectations, so you have to plan accordingly. It makes planning harder because the Americans are very useful to have on your side. But sometimes you, at this point, you just have to assume they won't necessarily be there when you need them for what you need. 
So uh, the UK has kicked out Russian diplomats. Russia's doing the same. There's sanctions being tightened. Where is this going? Where, uh, what's the end game here? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because how to how to have relations with Vladimir Putin's government? It's been a it's been a difficult question in the United Kingdom because. London has been a very popular place for Russian expats, both critics of the Putin government and loyalists of the Putin government. Uh, British laws, you know, sometimes they are uh, only applied uh, lightly when it comes to figuring out where wealth came from. Somebody's pouring hundreds of millions of pounds into the UK property market. They won't necessarily look at that too closely. And there have been accusations by Brits that that essentially British society has turned a blind eye to um, Russian investors pouring in ill-gotten gains, laundered money into the UK housing market. What they are now looking at very quietly in the UK is starting to really uh, look at some Russian investors a lot closer scrutiny, figure out where that money came from, freeze assets if necessary, boot them out of the country through whatever legal means they can, but essentially making it clear that London will no longer be a bolt hole for um for Russian plutocrats. And if they start doing that, especially to Putin loyalists, that could have uh, some pretty serious effects back in Russia. Because of the way we like to think of, you know, Vladimir Putin as a czar who knows all and controls all in Russia, the evidence does suggest he really does rely on a cadre of loyal business people, politicians who, you know, keep him in power and he rewards them. They need each other. If the British government starts going after their assets, their housing in, in London, that could start to sting. And that would, uh, I think that's something that would upset the Russian government very much. Uh, it seems that with the U.S. Uh, sort of stepping back for uh, from its big brother role in the world, that, that, that there's lots of grumblings with family members below. Will this change? Will this attitude in the world change with the next president? You know, that's a really good question. And uh, will the world I feel think, more secure in some way? I think so many policymakers and politicians right now, and you know, from the conversations I've had a lot of people have the attitude that we just need to figure out a way to navigate through this. You know, we don't get to pick the American president. The American people do. So let's focus on the next two years and, if necessary, the next six years. Figure out how to get through this. It's like you can't, pick your, in- it's like you can't pick your in-laws or your boss. You just got to yeah. make it work. You just make it work. What that means when the next president enters office, is there going to be a, a greater degree of skepticism around the world about the United States, about the reliability of the promises it makes about whether or not it's bargaining in good faith when you're negotiating with them, I think almost inevitably some of those questions are going to linger. It's going to be hard for them not to. But I think right now the focus is still really on, you know, the president is still the president. He was elected, uh, you know, fair and square essentially, despite allegations of meddling. And, you know, we have to work with them. And where we can work with them, we continue to work with them. Where we can't work with them, you know, you have that parting of ways. But it really is a matter of making it work right now. Will he ever hold a meeting with Kim Jong-un, do you think? Wow. Uh, You know, a month ago I would have said no. Right now uh, I'm going to lean towards yes. It's still going to be a remarkably hard thing to do. And, you know, as you've noticed, your listeners have probably noticed since the – since the White 
House announced or decided, and the Seth Greens announced that there was going to be that meeting last week. Already, the White House said, "Well, there are going to be conditions. Yeah. There are going to be conditions." Mm-hmm. So, I think most, you know, most signs still point to yes because I think the president has staked a lot of credibility on this. He said he can do this. All his predecessors failed. Well, they didn't fail. They chose not to. But he's promised that he's going to do this. You know, I think the, the but is it, Simon in the up. end in the end Simon okay. isn't his isn't his out that you know well we had the conditions they couldn't meet the conditions that everybody put in place so we can't do it I mean there's his out isn't it I think that's ultimately his out and I think the longer you know if the North Koreans manage to find ways to delay this if uh, members of his own administration find ways to delay it tell the fellow presidents to take a second thought or at least wait every extra day before a summit happens reduces the likelihood of it ever happening. But, you know, two weeks ago, we wouldn't even have talked about a summit as being remotely possible. Now it's still, you know, it's still, still a distinct possibility today. Good point. Uh, Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Oh, you too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. When we talk about gun control... We always think the conversation is going south of the border. And, of course, what is happening down there? And great to see the, the student protest that's going on. And, and I do think this in somehow will lead to change, simply because sooner or later these high school students in the next couple of years will have a chance to vote. I don't think their opinions are going to change too much. This could be, or could it be, uh, an issue which gets young Americans out to the polls. Uh, think about that. Many haven't seen this sort of mobilization since the Vietnam War era. Can you make those comparisons? We'll wait and see. All right. In the meantime, Canada has decided to uh, torque up its gun control laws. To talk more about all of this, Solomon Friedman is with us, criminal defense lawyer practicing in Ottawa and Eastern Ontario. Uh, Elderson Clifford D'Angelo Friedman, LLP. Firearms law is where the expertise and uh, Solomon is with us now. Solomon, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to help. So uh, I've, I've never owned a gun. I've never been licensed to carry a gun. If I decide this weekend... I want to start the process to get a gun. What do I have to do, Solomon? Okay, well, first of all, I can tell you that being licensed to carry that gun is probably not going to happen unless you're a wilderness trapper or you work as a Brinks guard. So let's leave aside carrying uh, firearms. That's not something that happens in Canada unless you're, you're hunting in the bush or out on, uh, out on your own property with a rifle. But uh, in terms of getting a gun in Canada, a lot of people don't know this, there are 2 million licensed gun owners in Canada. Um, in order to get a gun, in uh, a long gun, that's a rifle or a shotgun, uh, in Canada, you need to pass a two-day safety course that has a practical component to it. Um, that includes safe handling, loading, unloading. You have to pass uh, a, a fairly thorough background check, um, including references, including current domestic partners and former domestic partners. And that background check goes beyond criminal convictions in Canada. Uh, some charges, even if they've been withdrawn, uh, mental health events, so if you've ever been uh, held on a, uh, on a form uh, through the Mental Health Act, that can keep you from getting a gun. And once you're approved for a gun, that screening happens every single day. Your name is run through a database uh, to come up with matches of interest. Are you on bail? Have you been arrested? Um, even are you under investigation? So uh, it's, it's a fairly rigorous process. There's also a mandatory 28-day waiting period. Um, before one can actually receive the gun license. 
So we have training, we have screening, um, and we have ongoing scrutiny of law-abiding gun owners. Um, so uh, if I decide today to start the process, how long before I have gun in hand? Um, you're going to be looking at at least a month. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual, the, the reality of it is that you're probably not going to be able to find a course uh, you know, tomorrow you're probably. And these are all cert- like two the, months. These are all government certified courses, correct? That's they're given by private instructors, but right. they're all certified by the local provincial governments mm-hmm. through an office called the Chief Firearms Office, and uh, they have to teach a government mandated curriculum. They have to teach a minimum number of hours, um, and they have to give a government test. So you're basically looking at one to two months before, from where you start the process and where you end up with the purchase. Right. I'd say closer to, to two months because involved in that also is screening. So uh, that's the RCMP through the Canadian Firearms Program runs your name, like I said, through many, many databases. Um, and we'll call your references. Uh, and if you're married or living with a domestic partner or if you're, just, if you're recently divorced within uh, the past three years, I have a former domestic partner, they will be consulted hmm. as to whether or not you're a threat to, to their safety. So what is changing moving forward? What are we talking about today with the news story that, that these checks are going to be enhanced? You know, it, it's, it's tough to say, uh, given that we don't have legislation tabled. Um, if they say the checks are going to be enhanced, I, I'm very curious uh, to see what that looks like. Uh, my, my concern uh, is that they will say they're saying things are changing, but not much is actually going to change. They've talked about mental illness, so perhaps they may have a better integration of the database with uh, certain mental health uh, institutions' databases. Uh, the idea of boosting screening is, is going to be sort of almost laughable for people who've gone through the process and know how rigorous the screening is, uh, something that I, I defend individuals on regularly, people who are denied firearms licenses. So I've had an inside look at what that screening is, uh, the type of files. You know, your, your neighbor gave a complaint about you a few years ago. You were never charged. That can flag you potentially. Uh, I, I mean, it's very tempting for us to compare this with the United States, but in Canada, of course, there's no constitutional right to own a firearm. As the Supreme Court has said, it's not a right. It's a well-regulated privilege. Um, it's really a totally, totally different uh, realm when it comes to how firearms are regulated in Canada. So uh, Canada known, and I think most citizens feel that the gun laws are probably pretty solid here. Why these changes now? What will this do? Well, you know, this is uh, something that I've spoken about. I've testified about this before Parliament, that in the wake of any tragedy, whether it happens in Canada or not, there's pressure on politicians not necessarily to do something, but to appear to be doing something. And that's what this sounds like to me. You know, we don't have a systemic problem with gun violence in Canada. And when you actually break down the gun violence, you start looking at, you know, who is committing the majority of gun crimes. And they're criminals who are not authorized to possess firearms in the first place and don't obtain them legally. Uh, The vast majority of them enter the country uh, smuggled in from the United States. And when you're talking about problems like gang and gun and gang violence, these are very difficult problems to solve. They, they don't start, you know, with law-abiding gun owners. They, you know, these are problems you have to ask yourself, why does a 12-year-old kid join a gang? Why does, you know, somebody living in a certain community feel disenfranchised? You know, you have to look at issues of poverty and mental health and, and uh, marginalization. Those are really tough questions to tackle. So I always get, uh, you know, concerned when the government looks to be passing symbolic laws that don't really address the source of the problem. 
Uh, I can't let you go, Solomon, without asking you your thoughts on uh, the shooting, of course, in Florida. Then President Trump meets with families and such. He's sitting there in a room with with uh, both political stripes. Uh, they, they basically sit there with their mouths open as he says, don't be scared of the NRA. Uh, there's no reason to be and that we should be looking at background checks. We should be looking at age restrictions for automatic weapons, bump stocks. Those were three you know, basic uh, topics, issues that he brought forward only to flip flop and change his mind on uh, after meeting with the NRA. Uh, can't the NRA see where this is going? Why don't they meet them halfway rather like why is it an all or nothing thing here? Either we all get guns and there's no rules or, the, you know, or nothing, so to speak. Yeah, you know, in some ways that discourse is really inconceivable to me as a Canadian criminal lawyer, right? First of all, you know, they're dealing in the context of a constitutional right uh, that's enshrined in their constitution and has actually been interpreted very robustly in recent years by the United States Supreme Court. Um, I know that in our context here, that, that type of discussion, you know, our starting point is totally different. Our, the starting point is, uh, you know, how does somebody obtain this privilege of owning a firearm? And, and, and in Canada, yeah. like I said, you have over two million, two million law-abiding firearm owners. It's, it's a completely different context from the United States. They have very, very different political pressures. My, my real concern here is that, you know, because this is it's almost like a global sentiment when it comes to what's happening in the United States, that that spills over. And instead of leading to productive change, there certainly is productive change to be made in, in, in Canada, but it's not at the expense of people who are literally screened for yeah. criminal and mental health fitness every single day. Uh, will the U.S. get there, do you think? You know, uh, the one thing you've got to say about uh, Trump is expect the unexpected, yeah, right? Good point. So good if point. you have a president who can have the rhetoric he has and yet is apparently going to meet the leader of North Korea yeah. in the coming months, <laughs> you know, it, it took Nixon to go to China, it takes Trump to go to North Korea, maybe it takes Trump to go to the, the NRA. Solomon Friedman has been with us, criminal defense lawyer, uh, Edelson Clifford D'Angelo Friedman, LLP. Solomon, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, interesting discussion. Let's bring in Tony Bernardo, Executive Director, Canadian, uh, Canadian Shooting Sports Association, and is with us now. Tony, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Always my pleasure, Scott. So what are your thoughts uh, in regard to uh, the uh, government saying that they're going to torque up these laws a little bit? Well, I mean, this isn't unexpected. The Liberals campaigned on this right from the beginning, and uh, I think this is their promises coming to fruition. Uh, are you uh, concerned about the timing? Do you think this is a promise they just decided to keep? Why now? No, actually, it's not. It's not because uh, they were announcing that it would be uh, tabled in several weeks back last spring, and then again last fall, and then again around Christmas. And, you know, <laughs> it's just a continuation of the same thing. I think they're having a very difficult time uh, with some of the laws because you're, they're trying to torque up laws on. Uh, a system that's already very, very severe. So what, I, uh, is, what is the difference? What stands out to you between old system, new system, where they're going? Okay, well, it looks like they're trying to reinstate a backdoor gun registry, which is one of the things, of course, the Prime Minister repeatedly promised they wouldn't do. But here it is. You know, they're, they're now saying that they're going to require dealers to keep government records that associate an individual person to an individual firearm, and by any definition, that's a registry. Uh, it was interesting because I was looking through the points here uh, of the platform, repealing changes made by the previous Conservative government around the transportation 
of restricted uh, weapons, uh, also requiring enhanced background checks for people seeking to buy a handgun or a handgun or other restricted firearms, ensuring people who want to buy a firearm show a validated license. That all seems pretty straightforward. And then the Absolutely. last one, and then the last one, having firearm sellers keep records of gun inventory and sales. I thought, how do you do that? And is that a lot to ask of? Uh, the individual who, who's you know who has the store that's selling these things, and at yeah, what point? And at what point does the government come in and start controlling that? Well, that's the whole thing. You see, right now dealers keep records. Duh! I mean, they're selling a thousand dollar items with warranties on them. Of course, they keep records, and it would be insane for them not to. But on a business level, here's the difference. The difference is is that right now the records belong to the dealer not the government. Hmm. If, if the government wants to know something that's in the record, and by the way, the police do this every week, they go to the dealer and they say, can we please have some information on this? So what difference does it make if the government has that information? Why is the gun reg- registry or why do gun owners view the gun registry as, as negative? Well, I mean, we have only to look at our history to see that. I mean, the gun registry was an absolute disaster, full of governmental errors. And, I mean, there there was nothing good that came out of that, aside from $2 billion in taxes that uh, were blown right out for absolutely no purpose. What people see the, the registry as is, historically, any government has only ever registered private property of any kind for one of two reasons, to tax it or to take it. And the government showed no interest in taxing firearms. As a matter of fact, at one point in time, they even waived the fees to register them. So they've never shown an inclination to do that. So, I mean, it really doesn't leave much else, does it? So do you think this is going to become an issue moving forward into the next election? Absolutely. Uh, there's no question about it. The, the uh, liberal government repeatedly, repeatedly promised there would be no new gun registry. There it is. Like I say, you know, it might be a very ineffective gun registry. Is that is this really the only change that we're seeing in this, Tony, is the fact that they want the, um, wherever the purchase uh, originated, they want them to keep, uh, to keep record of it? Is that the, the major change in this? Is that the sticking point? Well, we don't really know, do we? Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen the bill. Um, some people are saying it's going to be tabled Monday, some Tuesday. We're still awaiting official word. But at that point in time, I'll, I'll know a lot more information. But so far, I mean, realistically, the stuff that, that we're seeing presented here in the rumor mill doesn't seem all that bad. Like, certainly we support background checks. Yeah. We've always supported that. Always, always. We've always supported mental health screening. And you know what? If they found a way to do that more effectively without stomping all over the rights of Canadians, we're perfectly okay with that. Absolutely. Perfectly okay. We, we want safe society exactly the same as everybody else does. Do you think Canadians are concerned about this? Do you think Canadians are thinking, wow, there's an awful lot of gun crime in this country and it's due to those that are purchasing guns? I mean, like, do you think the situation, well, of course it's nowhere near like it is in the United States, but do you think Canadians are concerned about that or do you think they think the laws are pretty good up here as far as gun control? I think the average person doesn't think about it from one month to the next, which means the laws are probably pretty good up here regarding gun control. What 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 is is diff- 
difficult to deal with is the fact that we're responding to something that happened in another country with completely different laws than what we have here. Canada doesn't really have much of a gun problem. You know, one of the stats they're not telling you right now is that of all the crime guns seized, mostly handguns, of course, only 5% of them have ever been registered, ever been registered. You know, they're saying that they've got 50% of them originating in Canada. And if you go and you take a look at this information, you'll find out that anyone they can't trace is put into that pile. Hmm. But in fact, only 5% of them have ever been registered. Those are the ones that really originated in Canada because any legal firearm coming into Canada goes through the registration process as it comes in. Even long guns, which don't have a gun registry anymore, the RCMP is still required to keep serial numbers of the ones that enter the country. Do you think Canadians are for a gun registry? Those that don't carry guns, those that don't, you know, that, that don't enjoy the sport, that don't know much about it. Do you think they're, you know, because, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I don't want guns. Do you, do you think yeah. this is a, a default position? You know, it might, it might be. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the Harper government, clearly got elected with a mandate to go ahead and dismantle the long gun registry. I think most Canadians recognized that it cost a fortune and did absolutely nothing. Where do you think this is going to go once this is all tabled? Are you expecting any big changes? It doesn't sound like you are. No, I'm, I'm really not. Um, I'm not expecting hugely significant changes, more smaller progressive changes. Like I say, if they want to go down the mental health route, and they've got a way that they can do an enhanced mental health screening. We're all for that. We're all for it. Tony Bernardo has been with us, Executive Director, Canadian, uh, Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Tony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Very, very appreciated, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.